what is up our favorite metal maniacs you've got george you've got tom you've got fergal you've got another podcast coming we've got fergal from the feckin metal podcast on our show fergal it's really great to have you here man thanks it's great to be here i've listened to your show almost every episode i think at this point and oh, i quite you. enjoy it uh, so it's good to be here a massive fan of judas priest since i was in my teens and i specifically love the song tyrant so uh couldn't have picked a better episode to well to make my debut on yeah man and let me thank you as well for coming to join us because i'm a fan of the feckin metal podcast as well i've been listening for a while you gave us some great advice when we were getting started out so it's awesome that we finally get to work together a little bit and tell us a little bit about how you got into priest yeah so i um when i was younger i, I was getting into hard rock and heavy metal there was bands like um acdc and guns and roses and uh, iron maiden before judas priest probably even black sabbath before judas priest but me and my friend Kevin, who you might have heard on Feckin' Metal, if you've listened to some of the earlier episodes, we used to buy like compilation albums uh, when we got into bands. And then we'd start going through their discographies, but each of us would buy like alternating albums. So he might buy whatever. If it was Iron Maiden, he might buy like uh, Seven Sun and I'd buy Paris Lay, blah, 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 blah. Because like we just share them then, like copy them and, and share them with each other. So I remember a friend of mine burnt uh, Rockerola actually onto a CD for me. He was like, if you like Iron Maiden, you love, you love Judas Priest. And I remember being quite underwhelmed with Rockerola. I was like, this doesn't sound anything like Iron Maiden. Uh, I'd like Why the few did you start songs. you with that one, man? That's, that's fucking bizarre. I was going to say starting with Rockerola. I think he was some kind of purist. He was like, I'll give you the wow. first album and you can go from there. But I, he never gave me any more. But there, were, there was enough on it. Like, I really liked their, on, on that version of Rockerola, there was a bonus track version of diamonds and rust which is different to the one that ended up on sin after sin uh but it was a studio version and it's my favorite version that they did of the song actually it's on the old gold records rockerola and and compilations that they released from that era but um i liked it enough to go and get a best of so i got the living after midnight best of was like it started from i think uh staying class i went through all their albums up until painkiller i think and um i loved that that was fantastic and then it was a case of just going out and buying albums like and like i did with bands like iron maiden i looked at the best of and i went okay what album can i buy that has the fewest songs or absolutely no songs on it that are on the best of like so actually uh i had rock and roll on a 
CDR. I had Living After Midnight, the best of Judas Priest uh, on an official release. And then the first studio album I bought was uh, Sad Wings of Destiny. Because I had, there were no songs, there was no crossover between Sad Wings of Destiny and the Living After Midnight compilation. So that's why I bought it. In a weird way, maybe it worked out the way it was supposed to because (laughs) you heard Rockerola first and then the first studio album you bought by yourself was the second one, Sad Wings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe it did. little sam adams cold snap over here dude me too hell yeah no way yeah bro we fucking a. didn't plan this no at we all didn't actually but no like i'm 100 serious we didn't plan this what's a cold snap it's just a variation of samuel adams is it yeah it's a white yeah ale. it's their winter ale, ale. Okay. very this crisp is- has a little bit of a citrusy taste to it a little orangey mm. great it's like a- Kind of like a better blue moon, I would say. Um, ah, all right, yeah. I don't, I don't know, like if you're familiar at all, Fergal, but um, Sam Adams every season, be it spring, summer, winter, or fall, they release seasonal flavors of their beers. And um, Cold Snap is one of their winter ones. They've also got a killer Oktoberfest and a really good um, summer ale. It's kind of got right. like lemon citrus going on. I'm a okay. big fan and advocate of Sam Adams. Right. Okay. No, I'm not too familiar with them. They 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 sell a bit over here, but it's not common. And uh, oh, I wouldn't get it in bars really too much. But I've seen it in American bars and stuff like so. I know right. it's a popular drink. It's kind of like for me at least, it's like the gold standard of beers. You know, like right. don't get me wrong, there's beers that I absolutely like better. But as far as like, this is sort of like the standard that all beers have to live up to for me. It's, it's kind of like be... Guinness for me. So sure. Okay, perfect. I mean, I'm not every beer is a stout, obviously, but like, it's definitely my favorite by a long, like a wide margin. Sure. I understand. I see what I, I know what you're getting at for the beer that you enjoy. It's got like Guinness is the standard. Definitely. All right. Nice. And I'm going to mention this for the listeners. We're on Zoom. I watched Fergal pour that Guinness. He poured it with the perfect amount of foam, guys. So mm. this man knows how to drink. <laughs> I believe it. Well, the thing with these widget cans, right, is they're 500 milliliters, but a glass, a pint glass is five, six, eight. So if you turn this completely upside down, completely horizontally, it'll pour a perfect pint. Uh, wow. But it looks like it's going to overflow, but it's not. So you just have to be confident and let it do its thing. And then it pours a perfect pint. So That is a beautiful so cool. tip. Yeah, and I saw somebody do it once. I was like, "You mean in a UK pint?" Because yes. I just found out last week that in US, our pints are different. They're different yeah. sizes, if you can believe it. I know. I found that out years ago. My friend was over in like he did a, a summer visa to the US, like about fifteen years ago, and he was trying to tell me a pint was like four hundred and seventy-three milliliters or something like that. And I was like, "No, a pint is a pint. It's an imperial measurement." He's like, "No, I'm telling you, it's different." I was like, "Nah." (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what it is. They made our pints smaller because they want to screw us, and they want us to think we're getting more beer, and we're not. It's the little bubble that you see at the bottom of every glass. They're usually bigger in America, so technically, Mm. like this is a pint, but they really skimp you by hollowing out the bottom of the glass. So, because in you. America, you'll never meet a greedier people in your entire life than Americans. <laughs> Gentlemen, everyone feeling good today? I'm feeling great, yeah. Excellent myself. Thank you for asking. Sweet. I'm feeling yeah, pretty man. darn good myself. I've Friday looking, night. 
and I'm ready to drink some beer, hang out, and talk some metal. Same, dudes. I've been really looking forward to talking about this episode because. So, do you guys want to hear something really embarrassing? Come well, on, do now. Okay. So, for the longest time, I uh, thought that the song "Dreamer Deceiver" was off of Rockarola, and I think it's because I used the length of Rob Halford's hair and beard to decide what era of priest they're performing in. And so, mm. since on the um, the old gray whistle test. He has really long hair. My fucking stupid brain thought, oh, this has got to be off their first album. For And that's just for the longest time, I thought that Dreamer Deceiver was off of um, Rock and Roll Up and it's off of um, Sad Wings of Destiny. So I learned I was because I was listening to it today. I was doing an, a whole listen of the album for this mm. episode. And I'm like, oh, damn, this is a really good version of Dreamer Deceiver. <laughs> Re-recording. <laughs> Yeah, they probably did have that song during the era. They probably had Dreamer Deceiver and Victim of Changes existed in an early form. So well, I feel like a lot of those Sad Wings songs did somewhat exist during Rockarola. With Maiden, a lot of killer songs existed when they did the first album. Yeah. Well, I think that clip from the All Great Whistle Test is actually from 1975, which is a year before Sad Wings was out, if I'm not mistaken. So. That could be another reason. Have to go and check that one. But I'm pretty pretty sure that it's from 1975. Yeah, and that's kind of weird because if you think about how a lot of those Rockerola and Sad Wings of Destiny songs existed at the same time in some form, mm-hmm. it's kind of weird how you got two different albums that sound kind of cohesive. Like, how did they know to put which songs on Rockerola and which songs on Sad Wings? And yeah. they might not even have been planning that far ahead because when you're that young, you work one album at a time. What I think is interesting is that they saved the best songs for the second album, which Iron Maiden didn't do, really. I think <laughs> they did it the other way around. They right. got rid of all of the good songs in album one and they put things like Another Life and whatever on the second album. Virgil, tell us, have you seen Judas Priest live? I have once, and it's one of my biggest concert regrets because i got way too drunk yeah Mm. i I got way too drunk before i went to see them so uh i I went with my friend kevin and a lad i used to go to college with joe and joe wasn't a big judas priest fan in fairness so he just wanted to go because it was a metal gig so we went to a college bar which wasn't our college but it had really cheap beer and we had like i remember we had like eight beers each before we went and uh it was because we could buy cans in like in groups of four like and they were big 500 mil cans so we had like eight of those each and as we were leaving we were, buy, we were like will we buy some for the walk because it was like about a 25 minute walk up to the concert venue so we bought another three each for the walk by the time i got there i was absolutely shit-faced <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's how i feel about the time i saw tool with my um with my wife which is my girlfriend yeah. at the time and we drank a lot before that show i the whole night is a blur to me. Basically. I remember vaguely being at the show. I remember vaguely before. And then after when we couldn't find a cab to get home. I know. So it's really annoying. Like, so this was called priest feast. It was 2009 and it was, they were touring the Nostradamus album and it was Judas priest, Megadeth and Testament were on the bill. Um, Yeah. So we missed Testament because we were drinking, but we got there when Megadeth were playing. And I do remember seeing Megadeth all right, but I remember the sound was shit mm. um, for Megadeth. And then Judas Priest came on. I remember bits and pieces, like the little flickers of the show. And 
I vaguely remember living after midnight and a few songs and stuff. And I remember they played the song Death from Nostradamus, which I think is the worst song on the album. And I was so annoyed that they played that and they didn't play some of the good songs on the album. <laughs> and I was just like really drunk, cranky, and in the worst frame of mind to be watching one of my favorite bands. And ever since then, I've never gotten shit faced at a gig before. Now, mm. I might have done at a festival when I didn't necessarily care about the band as much, but I've never gotten shit face at a headlining concert of a band I really like. So I learned a lesson from that. Hey, listen, a everything's story. a learning experience. Yeah, it's a good, it does make a good story, to be fair. Everything's a learning experience. I guess some things you just learn the hard way, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah. I, what, what's annoying is they played four years prior to that in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, with the Scorpions supporting on the uh, oh, Angel, of, Angel of Retribution tour. And that was at a time when I didn't really have that much money. But me and Kevin were hanging around town and it was like 50 euro for a ticket or something. We were like, oh, fuck it. We'll be going and get a ticket. And there's this place in Dublin called Sound Cellar, and it's still there. And it's a great place to buy a ticket because the guy who sells them only puts a one euro premium on each ticket. Whereas if you buy them from Ticketmaster, it would be like six euro fifty handling Damn. charge for each ticket so yeah. i always go in there to buy tickets if i can and we went in and it was closed and we were like ah oh, fuck it we'll go back next week and we never did oh <laughs> bummer yeah. and yeah, like i know man. i know somebody was at that show and he said it was absolutely fantastic and the scorpions were like really really good still back then and i really regret that so my judas priest concert attending history is tinged with regret and I hope to see, well, I, I have a ticket to see them this year at uh, Copenhagen. So that will be my redemption, hopefully. All right, man. Hell yeah. Listen, yeah, never, you deserve a chance to get to see Priest properly. So guys, what do you think about Sad Wings of Destiny? So Sad Wings, to me, is this is the album where you can tell Priest is really coming into their own as far as being like a true heavy metal band goes. But there is still a lot. There's still some remnants of their progressive rock days. This is a trend that continues for quite a few albums up until Sad Wings comes out. But Sad Wings is at its core. It's a metal album and a damn good one at that. There are some real bangers on this album, man. There's Victim of Changes, Genocide, Tyrant, like we're talking about today, Dreamer, Deceiver. This album is, I mean, it's Halford's favorite for a reason. It's stacked, dude. It is stacked. And I think it's Halford's favorite for a reason that you already touched on. It's the album where they started finding themselves. You know, Rockarola is pretty good it has some good songs but sad wings like man they couldn't have done more of an evolution if they tried yeah uh, it's like a, such a huge shift from the first album the first album has some good songs but they're all over the place especially that kind of winter winter retreat thing in the middle and then the like never satisfied and stuff and cheated like they're all kind of decent songs but they don't belong in a collection of songs together on an album it more it's it more sounds like a collection of b-sides with some decent songs in it or something which is odd for your first album your debut album but this album is definitely more cohesive and it's like it you can you can feel the inspiration in the songs you can hear it uh especially on tyrant and on Dreamer Deceiver. They're probably the two standouts. And I'm glad we're talking about Tyrant today. But it's it's like they had so many ideas, they didn't know what to do with them on this. And it's like each song has so many ideas in it. 
just that the individual songs are, are packed full of ideas. Whereas I think Rockerola was like, they made a song out of every idea they had and maybe only 40% of them are any good. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, it, it reminds me of the way that like Elvis Presley would kind of make his albums. It's like, because, you know, one of the things that Elvis and the Beatles got accused of back in the day was being a band, being like bands and of musician who only released singles. So mm. the strategy was you release the single or uh, two singles, and then you kind of release an album riding off of that success. And Rockerola is sort of like that. It's just sort of a hodgepodge of songs that they slap together and put a title on it. Yeah, I agree. The song of the week is Tyrant. Tyrant is a banger. It used to be the concert closer back in the day, if you can believe it. And Fergal, Mm. you said you have a bit of a story to tell us about this song and your history with it, man. Well, I have a story. I have a story about the song and kind of the album. So, um, as I said, the album was the first one I ever bought, the first studio album that I bought, um, and I had it on CD. And I remember I used to bring CDs to college with me in my backpack. And I remember one day I was going to college, and I had a disc man as well. We're going that far back prior to MP3 players, like, and um, this is like two thousand and four, and I had a. Judas Priest, uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, and I had Iced Earth, The Glorious Burden, two CD mm. version in my backpack with my disc mm. man. And I went out drinking after college and I left my bag on a fucking bus on the way home. Oh, <laughs> I lost I lost both of those CDs and it was heartbreaking stuff. And I, I remember then like you could buy this cheap compilation of both um, Rockerola and Sad Wings of Destiny called Genocide. It was one of those cheap, like throwaway compilations of the first two albums. There's about a million of them out there, and I, I bought that, but it never felt the same because it wasn't really the proper album. But um, I got the I got the actual album when I was still in secondary school, and I remember we were studying for the leaving cert at the time. And when I when I was listening to that album, Sad Wings of Destiny, the song Tyrant was the one that stood out to me most, and um, the word itself stood out to me, and I didn't know what it meant. And I, I remember having to go and look up the dictionary, like what does tyrant mean? And then I started using it all the time, uh, anytime I could. So like when we were in English class, one of my favorite things to do was to try and insert song lyrics into essays and try and get away with it. So uh, <laughs> I remember putting in like. There's an Iron Maiden song out of the Silent Planet. And I remember putting in the line, the punishment is death for all who live into the final piece of an English essay one time. And my, <laughs> my, my English teacher loved that. She was like, where did you get this from? She like, I just came up with it. But, um, <laughs> I, but I used to put tyrant in all the time. And because um, I just thought it was a, a great word, especially when I learned what it meant. And um, I remember we were studying Macbeth. So we had to study one English play for our leaving cert, which is our final school exams in Ireland. Um, and we were studying Macbeth. And there was this whole a theme of Macbeth being a tyrant. I was like, Lady Macbeth is the tyrant. And I remember in my Leaving Cert essay that I actually wrote in the the final exam for school, like I wrote that Lady Macbeth had a subtly tyrannical hold over Macbeth and she was the true tyrant of the play. Uh, so yeah, uh, I, I really right. like the word. <laughs> and that actually did come from you and it sounded awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a very reasonable take on Macbeth. Yeah. If we can yeah. go off topic for a second, like I actually agree with that too. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't come up with that logic. I mean, we were studying the, all of the characters of the play, you know, for two years. But, like, yeah, I liked, I, basically, anyway, I liked sticking in heavy metal lyrics anytime I could. And even if it was something, just even like a word, I got a little small personal kick out of it, uh, knowing that that I'd done it. Yeah, I remember when I had to do creative fiction for school, I would try and just name people either after songs or I would name the characters after like actual metal musicians, like just throw in a character named Dickinson just for the hell of it. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only person that did that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought I was too. Nah, man, not, not by a long shot. It's so funny when you, when you tell people stuff like that and the rest the amount of responses you get are like, Oh yeah, totally man. Me too. Yeah. It's a nice way to throw in, you know, you mix your love of writing with your love of heavy metal and just kind of like throw out those little homages, let people know. It's like, hey, you know what I'm into. But do you know what as well? I find it can make you quite creative because if you're sitting there trying to put a phrase from a song into an exam answer, you'll find a way. <laughs> you know? Sure, you'll find a way to reword it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas you might not have been able to answer the question if you had no starting point whatsoever. Mm. Yeah, man, like, you know, you can derive wisdom from heavy metal for sure, especially in the sort of operatic, very poetic lyrics of Iron Maiden. One thing I, I do very much like about Maiden is how elevated their music is. Kind of reminds me of um, like Bohemian Rhapsody, except as like an entire metal band. Mm. Feels like it's grand in scale. Yes, and it is. It is very much grand in scale. You know, even I would say, you know, even albums like, well, especially albums like Power Slave and Number of the Beast, they're huge. They're grandiose. And as far as Priest, I think Sad Wings of Destiny might be the album that's grandest in scale other than mm. Nostradamus. But, mm. you know, they were going for a lot of really ambitious territory back in the day. And you have songs like Victim of Changes and Dreamer Deceiver that don't go with any sort of typical song structure and even tyrant i would say is pretty atypical if you're reading the lyrics i'll just point out that it goes verse one chorus one verse two chorus two then it comes in with some sort of weird second chorus yeah the mourn for us oppressed in fear and I don't say it's weird because it's not good. It's a fantastic part, but it's not too often that you get a secondary chorus in a song. Then it goes back to verse chorus, the alternate chorus again, but only for the second time. And then verse chorus. So you hear the real chorus four times, the secondary <laughs> chorus twice. Yeah. Weird, but it is a good part. Those elements of progressive metal are still in there. They didn't shed that for a long time, you know. And then I think probably starting with British Steel, started for a more traditional song structure but with mm. a lot of the heavy metal elements that they would go on to adopt 
Yeah, yeah definitely. Or maybe even Hellbent for Leather, Killing Machine mm. before that. Although mm. that album was very much uh, transitional and it was transitory between British Steel and Stained Class before it. See, for my money, Priest has been making heavy metal in one respect or another basically their entire career. But uh, for but I think that their first true metal album is probably British Steel. And then until that point, they have, they're in this transition phase from progressive rock into metal. And they go a little more with the metal each time. I think this really hits its peak on Sad Wings of Destiny. Yeah, I, I think it's a shame that they lost that, actually, when it, let's say, it maybe it's held out for letter, maybe it's British Steel. But like after that, they didn't really have that again. You did mention Nostradamus, but they were really trying with Nostradamus. It didn't mm-hmm. come naturally. It was like forced progressive elements whereas with sad wings they probably weren't even trying to do it it's just what came out when they wrote sounds yeah they were going for something really different here for the most part they managed to go for something that was different pull it off and also have kick-ass songs to match you can make a grandiose album and you can have it not come through like nostradamus is an empty banquet hall like the room is massive and it can seat hundreds of people, but it's not full. And it just, I love up. that. I've That's never an heard that. Analogy. <laughs> I've never heard that term that, uh, yeah, I've never heard that before. An empty banquet hall. I really like that. That reminds me of, um, there's a saying about things like, you know, as vast as an ocean, but as deep as a puddle, so mm-hmm. to speak. I'm uh, I'm sticking that in my next English essay, George, just to let you know. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Take it. It's free. Well, Nostradamus (laughs) is an interesting sort of case study because we talked about this on our episode where we talked about um, Revelation, right? They, their manager came to them and just sort of pitched the idea of a concept album to them mm. and said, you guys have never done this before. So they're working against that constraint as opposed to something like Sad Wings, which evolved naturally, presumably. Exactly, yeah. It's like, have you thought about doing this? It's not that they were inspired to do it. It's that they were mm. trying to find inspiration after a kind of directive from management yeah exactly and i mean to be fair they were definitely taken with the idea it was something they ran with and they i think if i'm not mistaken kk and rob both hold nostradamus in pretty high esteem yeah well sure like rob halford was saying in interviews for a couple of years afterwards that they were planning to do a full uh like a full orchestra show and do the entire album in full and all that type of stuff it never happened but I think he definitely held it in high esteem, uh, maybe more so than Glenn or Ian, I'm guessing. I don't know. They just seem more um, like working class. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I know Rob well, is working class, like, but he has. I understand people. what you're yeah. getting at, though. Yeah. They're the kind of guys that are like, oh, yeah, we played it. We made the album, you know? Yeah. They're not going to go to an opera like where, as I say, Rob Halford probably has been to a few. Rob Halford, if you've read his book, He actually started working in the entertainment industry as a teen in uh, 
working at a theater, I believe, and not like a movie theater, like an actual theater where people put on plays and stage shows. And yeah. he worked backstage. He was doing lighting and stuff, I believe. So I feel like he sort of has that as part of his personality, like a very performative person. Mm. Definitely. And I forgot that detail, actually. I did read his book. I read it when it came out. It was one of those books I devoured, devoured in about like two and a half days or three days or something like that. And you just start reading the book and you, I find with those though, like you, you read it and you think it's brilliant. Then you forget 75% of it immediately. And uh, you have to go back and read it again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially if you're someone like me, where my memory retention is not terribly good. It really takes something compelling to stick especially when I'm reading books. Yeah. That being said, it, it's not surprising to me that Halford has his background in musical theater or even just theater in general, because his onstage presence is so commanding, especially mm. all throughout his career is just, he captures you and captures your imagination. So Tom, I know that you love Judas Priest you aren't familiar with a hundred percent of their work. So when you sat down and listened to Tyrant, what did you think? How did it make you feel? Let me think about that. Cause I've been listening. I've been listening to the album for the last two or three days. And so here's a funny thing, actually, for whatever reason, when you go onto Spotify, you know how they have the, um, the year that the album was released hmm. for whatever reason, sad wings is listed as being released in 2000. And Is I it? sat there, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I don't, that doesn't seem, you know, especially when you hear Halford's vocals on this album, I'm like that does not sound like 2000s Halford. Also, Rob wasn't with the band in the year 2000. So <laughs> Spotify must be a, not 100% accurate. Maybe that it must was be a, a US phone. thing. Yeah, maybe it was like a re-release or something, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say remastered or anything like that. My impressions of Sad Wings are overall really positive because which album was this? This is number well, two. It's their second oh, yeah. album. Okay. And I know that you love Sin After Sin. Yes. Stained Class, which are from the same time period. So this is a really good album because it's got that perfect blend of progressive rock and metal that I'm constantly prattling on about with this band. My impressions are going from the first four tracks alone. You go from Victim of Change up into Genocide, and they're all really strong songs. Tyrant has some of Rob's strongest vocals, I think, and the harmonies are fantastic as well. I think that it reminds me very much of Robert Plant on Led Zeppelin Four, which I think we've talked about before, is that his voice is so strong. It is just absolutely blaring through the speakers. Mm. You can really feel the power behind it. Dare I say he's really at his, some of his best work is on this album. I think he's at his vocal peak actually. And I have a note here to say that oh. I don't, I don't recall him. Maybe, maybe on touch of evil from painkiller, but just yes. that one part of that one song where he goes, it's possessing me. Uh, yes. But I, I don't know if I've heard him as powerful for an entire album as I have on Sad Wings of Destiny. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's really given it 150% on this. Now, I 
don't get me wrong like he's doing really impressive stuff on albums like painkiller but just like his falsettos on mm. sad wings are almost transcendently terrific that's it like on, on the song painkiller he does that voice which he only really did one time ever and it's really strong but it's not carrying a melody as such it's more it's like a trick uh like you know it's like he's singing in such a unique and different way it's kind of like a it's it's kind of a trick out of his box of tricks but in sad wings of destiny he's holding notes for a long period of time really powerfully and that is like i think true singing and i think maybe painkiller is more of a like a little kind of trick he has up his sleeve Mm, I see what you're getting. Now that you mention it, like the cadence of the vocal delivery, like obviously it's screaming, but the cadence of how it's delivered, like it could translate into being rap like just because there's a rhythm to it and Mm. the words are just spaced out, even though Mm. he's screaming it, like they're very rhythmic. Yeah, and he's not holding a note or he's not holding a melody for several seconds at a time. And one of the strongest examples of this album when he does that is at the end of this song, I think there's a like a 12-second note. And Every man he even does, fall. Yeah, and he even does it on the live version as well. And it's just like, that is like, that's peak Halford right there. I kind of had a similar thought. It's not that he's necessarily downhill. It's like this is the peak, and then there's like a thirty-year plateau after that. Yes. I, oh, I, yes. I yeah. Yeah. I don't think his vocals get much better, but they certainly don't get worse. No, I just think maybe this is the best demonstration of his vocal power and range. Um, yeah. And then he settles into a groove on the later seventies albums and the eighties. Definitely, he kind of picks a spot. But you can't sing like that for your life, the rest of your life. It's just impossible. Like, and maybe he could sing like that in the eighties, but he chose not to because he thought he'd destroy his voice uh, yeah. too soon. Which was probably a wise choice if he did do that. Yeah, preserving your vocal cords for as long as you can. I mean, prolonged singing, like any stress you put on your voice, is going to do some damage over time. And you know, what am I trying to say here? I mean, I don't expect you don't you don't expect him to be able to do that stuff forever, you know. Like you, you hear something on you hear that sort of singing that he does on um dissident aggressor, where he is constantly jumping range, you know, mm-hmm. like uh like what's it? I'm stabbing and falling, punching yeah. and crawling. And he's yeah. that's that's difficult to do for someone who's in their prime, let alone a 70-year-old man. Yes, that's true. But again, I think that's more kind of trickery. It's 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 a skill. It's part of a skill set, but it's mm. not pure high pitched holding a note and singing like he does oh, on this album. Okay. That's that's just my opinion. It's not. I'm not. I see <laughs> where you're coming from, though. Like I absolutely understand because there's something different about him on Sad Wings. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure what the energy is, but there's a trans. Like I said, there's a transcendent performance going on yeah. in this album. And listen, if any of you have ever sang, it's not easy to hold a note for 12 seconds. No. Like the longer you have to hold the note, the harder it is. And I know I'm stating the obvious there, but a person who's not trained at singing, you can listen to it and it might not sound hard, Mm. but try it out for real 
It's oh, I know, yeah. yeah. When you compare it to the version that we get on Live Insurrection, and I'm probably jumping ahead here. I'm sorry if I am. Like, he's implying every trick in the book to get that song out of him when, when he sings it in 2001. But, like, in, in 1976, he can sing Tyrant, no bother. But in, like, 2001, he's, like, he's jumping all over the place. He's speeding things up. He's leaving out syllables. He's, like, you know, but like, it's, um, this is just pure, pure melody, pure power. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess we should transition into the live insurrection version now, since you happened to bring it up, <laughs> because I think live insurrection is a real banger of an album. And we've brought it up a couple times before. That is a Rob Halford solo album recorded in 01, opening for Iron Maiden on tour. Mm. Really, really strong live album with excellent renditions. Tyrant is the show closer for that one, mm. just as it was on Unleashed in the East. That's the one you wanted me to listen to that one, right? But it's the one where he's got the guitars from Scorpions playing on that track? Yes, he does. Yeah, I listened to that one yesterday, and I was t- really taken by it. It's Halford, his solo live performances are, I think, some of his finest work. Which guitarist from Scorpions did he have, actually? I didn't realize that. Rudolf Shanker, man. All right. Okay. Yeah, he guests on that performance of Tyrant. So if you're listening and you're a Scorpions fan, that's just one more reason to check it out. That ass, fam. That ties into the Stained Class episode we did not so long ago because we mentioned that he pulled out a couple songs from the Priest catalog that at that point, Judas Priest wasn't playing anymore. Uh, Tyrant was one of them. Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, I remember discovering that album like later on into my Judas Priest fandom and looking at that going, Jesus, like uh, you wouldn't expect to see that on a Judas Priest live album at all. Obviously, it was on um, Unleashed in the East, but not not in the 2000s era. That was long forgotten. Ripper never did that, as far as I know. Halford has a lot of respect for the old eras of Priest, the older songs, which is why, you know, me and George are so thrilled by them bringing back songs that have not been played in 30 to 50 years. 
of their yeah. existence as a band. They are pulling out like they played Rockarola not that mm. long ago, which is, I mean, my, I I doubt this is gonna happen, but it would be really really cool for them to play Dreamer Deceiver again. Oh, I don't know if he could handle that though. Do you think, I he don't could? think Rob can do it? No, that's what I'm saying. Like like I mean. I feel like I don't know if he still or if he ever, for that matter, looked into vocal coaching. But if he doesn't, I feel like that's something that he might benefit from in his older age is maybe finding ways to adapt old material. Not necessarily the way that he I'm sure he definitely works with trainers. Uh, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, yeah I guess neither of us can really know. Yeah, and to me, it just kind of seems obvious. I, like yeah, to be a professional, tell you care Halford. about continuing your career. That's something <laughs> yeah. that you would want to do. But yeah, like, who, who the fuck am I to tell Halford that he needs? I'm not telling him how to do his job. It's <laughs> Halford, bro. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah, really. What are you gonna do? Stop him? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, Dreamer Deceiver would be fucking cool. I mean, maybe they have to readapt the song to lower the register. But, you know, if they rework it, I think any song can be reworked. Ballsy enough to try to go on tour with one guitar player there. (laughs) They can they can give this another shot. The beauty of that song, though, is those really, really, really high pitched kind of Halford. I won't even say screams because he's holding a note. He's holding a melody. Mm. I don't know if you could replicate that in a lower register, a lower key. I I don't know. I think they maybe should leave that one the fuck alone. Yeah, maybe. I mean. I think it's okay to dream, Fergal. <laughs> but not to deceive, right? <laughs> that was good, man. I, I set you up for that one. <laughs> that one's going in the book as one of the top quotes. Here we go. <laughs> I'm glad we recorded that. You've got the Irish wit. My hey. friend Owen, he also lived in Ireland for half his life, and he has a very witty sense of humor. I call it the Irish wit. You yeah. got it too. Extremely dry, very clever. It's all we've got, though, on drinking. They're the two <laughs> things we have. So, well, listen, I've said this before. Um, my buddy Andy is um, is Irish as well. He said that um, God invented whiskey to keep the Irish from conquering the earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually quite like that Family Guy clip. I'm sure you've seen it, where they were like, "This is what Ireland was like in primitive times," and they're all like, <laughs> really good, like developed, well developed scientists and all this type of shit. <laughs> and they're like, "Hey, then, Finnegan invented this in his yeah. basement." <laughs> I know exactly the clip you're talking about. They start beating the shit out of each other, and it's not too <laughs> far from the truth, to be honest. <laughs> Getting back to live insurrection, so. I think that version of Tyrant is pretty badass. You know, it definitely sounds like early 2000s Halford, where he was singing a little more in a lower register, and then his highs and his screams, he saved them a little bit, but they were also with more of a vicious thrash metal kind of bite to the screaming, because that's the sort of thing that he was doing with Fight and his solo act. Now, you said you weren't crazy about that version, and I kind of, I I didn't notice the note ducking and the sort of tricks, as you called them, and I'm just kind of curious, yeah, like, yeah, I can elaborate. So really familiar with the original to be able to pick out those little differences. I think he spoils the delivery of the chorus, so um, 
he's like tyrant da, 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 and then like he lashes it all out like i think the person i think he should have had a backing vocalist singing tyrant so he could take his time with hideous destructor instead of trying to lash out all the syllables himself really really quickly in a space that was too small to fit them all then um, he does that in unleashed in the east though does he not i know he does and i don't think it's right there either I think he should have had somebody singing that in the background. Get Ian Hill to do a backing vocal. Surely he can manage the word tyrant. I'm sure he <laughs> Richie and Andy oh, Sneap, they already have microphones in front of them. So what's yeah. the excuse? They can sing. I don't know. Then I just think it all sounds rushed. I think uh, the Mourn For Us part, he sings it in a different kind of uh, speed. Uh, he speeds up in some parts and then he slows down in others. And it's just not the speed that I'm used to. It's not the flow that I'm used to from the album version. And I, I don't know. I think it could have been rescued if he had a maybe one had a backing vocalist, two not messed with the speed of the delivery. And I think also the guitarists aren't a patch on Glenn or KK uh, on that, I'm afraid. If one of them is uh, Rudolf Schenker, I'm sorry, but <laughs> they're, not, they're not as good. <laughs> That's Glenn and KK. Nah, man. Like that, it's hard to get much better than legendary. You know, no matter how technically impressive you are, I mean, it's pretty hard to top um, Glenn and KK. Especially the bit at the end where the dual guitar comes in towards the very end. It's like on the live version, it's not really hitting it for me. You know, me and George talk about this a lot is the idea of bands touring with two vocalists. Because I actually like Tim Owens quite a lot as a vocalist. And it would be pretty cool, or at least very interesting, to get him on the tour again, doing some of the songs that, or at least going, like maybe being like a secondary vocalist, if not coming in to do songs where Rob can't really do it anymore. Yeah, I think I remember can... you saying that. But uh, uh, the interesting thing about Tim Owens is they actually downtuned when he was with the band. So those two live albums they released, 98 Live Meltdown and uh, Live in London, are, are downtuned which yes. would insinuate he can't hit the notes Halford can. Mm. So I don't know if he'd make much of a backing vocalist if they're not singing. Like, they'd have to come to some kind of compromise about what key they were going to sing in. My input on that is that they were down-tuning probably because of just the era that it was. In the 90s, metal was getting yeah. heavier. You had Pantera, you had death metal, you had hardcore punk dominating the scene. And I think they downtuned because a lot of the songs on Jugulator probably demanded it. And they also want to give a heavier feel to Hellion Electric Eye breaking the law. Mm. Because, I mean, to my untrained ear, those screams, those high screams that Tim Owens is doing, they're not really any lesser than the screams Halford is doing. Mm. And I thought actually he sang, he sings really well on the Glorious Burden, the Ice Earth album. Um, mm. I did wonder why they downtuned though with those live albums, but that does make sense, I suppose, because of the time period. And maybe they just weren't arsed retuning their guitars or having second or secondary guitars. <laughs> it, it wasn't a popular thing in metal up until about the 90s to downtune your guitars. That was something that a lot of bands were not doing that. It was very common to for songs to be performed in E standard, 
I'm not sure quite what changed. I think like George said, it was the advent of groove metal and bands like Pantera that started playing in D and C because Priest, they it seems like they alternate their live set between playing D and C standard on their guitars. I would love for them to play some songs in E again, especially songs like um, I would love to Hell Patrol played in its original tuning. I'm not terribly keen on some of their songs in um, D standard, um, especially the painkiller songs. I think a lot of them sound better in the original E standard tuning. I think some of them are better now, mm. especially breaking the law. Yeah, I will say uh, breaking the law and um, songs like electric eye sound phenomenal in all in um, lower tunings. I was going to say, I think they brought tyrant back recently, actually. In the firepower tour, if I'm not mistaken. Did they? Yes, they did. Here's the set list history. Judas Priest played the song a lot in their early years. We all know it's the closer on Unleashed in the East, which came out in 1979. British Steel Tour. They were still playing it somewhat. Point of Entry Tour. They're still playing it most nights. And then once Screaming for Vengeance hit, it fell out of the set list. And mm -hmm. it didn't come back until, like you said, the Firepower Tour which is like pretty much inarguably one of the best priest tours ever at this point. Yeah. I wish I got to see it. It just didn't come. It didn't come here. They were supposed Bummer. to support Ozzy Osbourne and that gig has been delayed like about five postponed about five times now. Um, were, were we talking about that with, um, was, who were we talking about? Stephen that? Waddell. Yes, Stephen yeah. Probably, yeah. yeah. Was that, was that Waddell or was the, who else was that? Who was the other guy um, that we spoke to? Maybe Eric from Maiden A to Z. Someone was saying <laughs> Dude, that. I'm sure everyone I'm in sure Europe was, is having the same experience. I'm almost positive it was Steve Waddell, though, who said that he was waiting on the priest tour. But then I think um, he's, I, I remember him saying it as well. Yeah, because yeah. I've, said, I've like it's it's ridiculous. I actually got a refund for my ticket because I was like, this is never happening. And like, if it does happen, I'll go and buy a ticket, obviously. Yeah. But I was just like, I'm just going to get the money back now at this stage. Ozzy is like the walking dead and <laughs> Judas Priest for some reason don't seem to be able to play a gig in Ireland. And I reckon it's they're contractually bound to 
to the Aussie tour. That's I, exactly just, what Steve Waddell said. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I know. I remember hearing him say it, but I have taught this myself because mm. you hear things like, you know, when bands have a, a festival date booked in the UK, they can't have a UK tour, you know, date, blah, blah, blah. And like, I don't know why they wouldn't have played Ireland now in the last, Jesus, what is it? Like, it's it's 13 years ago since the last time they played. Like, they definitely I mean, would have. I mean, how long do you have to be contractually obligated until they play there again? Well, that was supposed to be 2019, that yeah. that show. And then it was postponed to 2020, 2021, 2022, and now 2023. Yeah, yeah. That's got to really suck, man. Especially like, this is something I think about, especially because my mind always like just drifts into dark shit. People have died waiting for that tour to happen. Yeah, like it's so morbid to think about. Uh, uh, but we're going on almost four years now. Mm. KK Downing hasn't like, died, but he's committed career suicide. <laughs> Tom, can I just stop you for a second and say, I thought about the same thing. <laughs> like, I remember as a teenager, like I fell into this line of thinking when I was reading some Amazon review for a book by George R. R. Martin saying <laughs> my friend actually died waiting for this book to come out and it wasn't Jesus. even that good. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, I've just been thinking like anytime something's delayed, it's like oh, Chinese democracy, how many Guns <laughs> N' Roses fans died before they could hear it? How many people did it kill? Genocide. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go downside. Uh, well, well, listen, I'm definitely, I mean, in a sense, I'm definitely glad I'm not the only one who has that sort of morbid thought process. I must say, I've never thought that, but I will now from now on. Great. Everything. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm Fergal. Sorry. My bad. We dude. just ruined. <laughs> and probably a few of our listeners, too. Now they're all going to be sitting there like, God damn you. Speaking of KK, although this is not really germane to today's subject, is that it was was reading an interview. No, it was an excerpt from a podcast that Richie Faulkner did recently. And Faulkner is such like a level headed, like even keeled person. He was talking about the whole controversy with KK Mm. and his thought process was, I wish that him and the band would just get on the phone and talk at this point and then go out for beers and hash it all out. And I'm like, that is such an that is such a level-headed response to this situation. Because if someone was out there talking shit about me for a decade, I'm not sure I would be as amicable as that. But Faulkner just seems so like reasonable about the situation. See, I think he, he hasn't been poisoned by the establishment. So Judas Priest came up from nothing into a world-beating band. And they let their managers take over. And the same thing happened with Black Sabbath and Aerosmith. And it's like the members of the band all of a sudden have their own individual manager or there's multiple managers involved. And no one person in the band can talk to another one person because it's like, no, I don't talk to people. My manager speaks to people and he makes my decisions for me and thinks for me and tells me what I'm allowed to do. And that's clearly happened to Judas Priest. And KK, I think, or sorry, like Glenn or Rob, they're so far removed from reality now that they wouldn't just phone up KK Downing and go for a point with them because it's so far removed from their world that they've been conditioned to for so long. They just don't exist in reality anymore. Yeah, you know, we were talking about this with somebody and I and I forget, I think it might have been Eric from Maiden A to Z was saying that 
Priest has always been a little more willing to sort of play ball with the establishment, mm. especially in the music industry. So that's kind of not surprising to me that most of their communications would come from their managers at this point. Yeah, I think that the greatest hits set or box set that Priest put out in the late 90s, the early 2000s, I don't think the band members even talked to each other. I think that was pretty much all done through mm. their lawyers relaying messages back and forth to each other. I mean, like, think about what happened with Les Binks. They didn't even know why he left the band until how many years later? The most frustrating part for me was reading the fucking Rob Halford's autobiography. And it was like, the way he left the band was so pathetic and like so easily fixable. But even by 90, whatever it was, too, they were so poisoned by that whole management thing that they had just they had ceased to exist in the normal world. And like when he gets a memo, you know, saying that he's no longer in Judas Priest, he just accepts it and hadn't spoken to them for ages. And it's just like I'm just I'm just reading it going like like you were saying earlier, like like what's his name? Um New get guitars. on the Rick, phone, Rick. but just get on the phone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Even in the nineties, they were at that. Like, and it was just such a waste, such a waste of like a singer and a band and yeah. for nothing, for no reason. Like, yeah, I know. It's one of those things that uh, kind of a big disappointment is just that there seems to be so much unnecessary drama with this band that can be boiled down to a failure to communicate. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants. Well, he gets Absolutely. Yeah, man. I mean, I mean, I, I often dream of a world in which Les Binks stayed with them for another decade or two. That would be good. He still has chops today. Yeah. I mean, he does. He has his cover band Priesthood, where they do priest albums exclusively from the 70s. Yeah. Rad. So the guy still knows what he's doing. I mean, maybe not as technically proficient as, um, Scott Travis, but who the fuck is? Most death metal drummers. Fair enough, but like you gotta, I don't know, man. Like that guy is on like, I don't know, man. Scott Travis is on his own, is on a whole nother level as yeah. far as like what, like not even like his he's a brilliant ability. musician. Precisely. He's not just trying to blast beat you into oblivion. He's yeah. actually throwing in very technical parts and making them fit contextually as yes. a musical piece too. Ex my point precisely, like I doubt you're ever gonna hear him do gravity blast. Not that I'm sure he can pull them off, but it's just not his style. It's not conducive to the sound of priest. I don't know what that is. Oh, um, ridiculous. If you look up gravity blasts, you'll, you'll just be like, oh, I get it. So this is the gravity roll. Higher speed. Even higher. Even higher. 
even higher. Right. Let's take a listen to Tyrant and we'll sort of break down our impressions on how we feel about the different pieces of it. Hell yeah. Excellent. That riff, that riff is boss, guys. It's fucking fantastic. Do you know what? I, do you know what I've written here? Actually, the opening riff is like the tone is perfect hard rock. The kind mm-hmm. of difference between like Maiden and Priest, you'd never hear Iron Maiden writing a riff like that. Um, not in that tone, certainly not. No, or that I think, speed. I don't think. I think it's because Maiden definitely comes from a more punk background, when where their speed is concerned. Priest has always had some of its roots have been pretty firmly in hard rock. And that's a really good point you bring up. And I've also written this, this song is full of hooks and that's the first one. The opening riff itself is a hook. You could hum that. You could walk away with that in your brain after hearing it once. You'd be like, what was that song I was listening to? (laughs) Yeah. It's simple, but very effective. I call that an alternate chorus or a second chorus just because of the way that it comes in and it's delivered. It's with a lot of energy. It sounds major key. Maybe that's just because the vocal track is doubled. I'm not sure, but it feels like the song is building up to that. And it's like the verse builds to the chorus and it's almost like the chorus builds to this extra alternate chorus. (laughs) the song maintains like an elevated energy throughout so i like that point you bring up about the what you call it an alternate chorus yeah and yeah that mourn for us part it comes in twice like it comes in now and then again around the third instance of the verse chorus pattern so the second and the third instance of the verse chorus pattern, you also get the second or alternate chorus. Mm. 
I was saying earlier, it's absolutely full of hooks. So you've got the, like, as I said, the opening riff to me is almost a hook already. Then you've got the tyrant, you know, whatever, hideous destructor part. And then you have the mourn for us part. You've got like three really, really catchy parts all in one song. And I think the mourn for us thing is it's even catchier than the actual chorus. I, like, you know, when like so you have a lead into a chorus in a song, you call it a pre-chorus. And it's like usually quite a melodic, catchy part. And then you get the big chorus. I feel this is almost like a post-chorus. Yeah. If such a thing exists. Post-chorus. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good word. I know what you're talking about too. Like sin after sin kind of has like that pre-chorus build. Right yeah. before we go, before you hear the first sinner. Yeah. So yeah, so you've got that, but it's like afterwards, which is very uncommon. And I would struggle to think of another example of it actually off the top of my head. But it's like yeah, it's a it's two for the price of one. It's a, it's a fucking get down here before they sell out. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. Like that whole thing of pushing boundaries and exploring new territory has always been an integral part of the band. There are some elements like that that I don't think they really um, capitalized on that, which is a shame because it takes this song and it really it sticks out. It's it, in their discography. Tyrant stands out. Definitely. Yeah. And you won't often find a band closing with a song if it stinks. Like Tyrant was the concert closer in the 70s pretty often and mm. maybe even some of the early 80s. Like this is a song that was in the encore. It rocks, man. Yeah, definitely a, a good closer. I think a closer is just as important, if not more so than your opener. You know, when you're going for your grand finale, there's worse songs you could pick than this by a long shot. Definitely. Especially yep. the way it ends with the every man shall fuck. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because mm. we're about to listen to a fucking sick lead by Gwen Tepton. I guess for lack of a better term, it's so impressive how many chops Glenn Tipton has in his brain. And, you know, there is a tendency for guitar players to sort of pigeonhole themselves. And you can, as the discography goes on and as they write more and more songs, you start to hear recurring themes a lot. And I can't hear any when Tipton plays his, he's always got, something new to write maybe it's not something that's always incredible but you can't accuse him of being a redundant player definitely not are, are we saying that whole section there is that all glenn tipton it is 
It is. Okay. I didn't know that. Now, I'm not like, I, I'm not too familiar with the live clips, so I don't know exactly who's doing what solos. Um, but that is fantastic. I've written here, trading solos, very impressive. <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, for the longest time, I thought that they that painkiller, I thought they were trading solos on that. Yeah. No, that entire first solo is just Tipton. It's funny because like, to me, when I was listening to that earlier, there are three distinct parts of it. And I thought it was going either Glenn, KK, Glenn, or KK, Glenn, KK. But I take your word for it, and it's Glenn, Glenn, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. The guy is, dare I say, one of the best guitar players of all time. Not even like best metal guitar player. I'm talking about, like, as far as legendary guitar players go, he... Oddly enough, almost flies under the radar of most yes. people's lists. Well, that 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 piece there, that's 30 seconds long, and it's absolutely fantastic. And it's like it's it's the epitome of heavy metal soloing back in the days before we started having subgenres of heavy metal. That's yeah. uh that's something you would like um preserve and send into a, a space shuttle or whatever they do with films. <laughs> you send that you send that on the Voyager. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't have Gwen Tipton on their list of best guitarists, listen to Dreamer Deceiver. Just please, mm. for the love of God, do you, you'll be doing yourself a favor. And Tom, you were the one who taught me this. When you're not sure if a solo is Gwen or KK, there is a tell. And the tell is that Tipton is a much cleaner player. That's what you told me. Absolutely. KK is his soloing is frantic and chaotic and loaded with technicality but i think that glenn just puts a a lot more of himself into each note right. his soloing it's extremely impressive but it's not really like flashy in a sense mm. it's not that one of them is a better player than the other it's just that their styles are so distinct from one another yes and, but it's it, it's so cool hearing them feed off of each other because they each know what the other one needs when they're playing. Downing puts on an awesome rhythm section when he has to, and he knows what's going to complement Glenn's playing and vice versa. They're so artistically in sync with each other that you would almost think it's like you get the polish of a single person playing, but with the diversity of two guitar players. Yeah, I agree. Very well put. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Glenn Tipton and KK Downing, man, they're peanut butter and jelly. Like they're that both good. Though. They're yeah. both good on their own together. They're something special. That See, is also a fantastic analogy. Rob Halford and <laughs> Judas Priest. They're like gin and tonic because separately they don't work. But then when you put them together, Man, now this tastes good all of a sudden. <laughs> it's true, man. Like, what? it's just the amount of things that come together to make this band as fantastic as it is. You know, you want to talk about being greater than the sum of your parts. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I like that gin and tonic analogy. That was very good, actually. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that, that, the Dude, you pulled out two great analogies in one video. <laughs> and gin, let's face it, gin is disgusting on its own, and so is tonic. So, yeah, that's, I, I, I like gin. <laughs> on its own, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, listen. Well, then maybe you should listen solo. to some Rob Alfred solo albums. <laughs> 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 so this one's the harmony. 
it's so beautiful. So you get the awesome, awesome harmony solo with Tipton and Downing playing together. Oh, and then it launches back into the post chorus again. Yeah. It's it that that duel playing at the same time, it, that's irresistibly good. Like it and I wonder, is that the first time they've really showcased that? Is there another example? Ooh. Did they do that on Dreamer Deceiver as well? I can't remember. I don't think they did harmonies on Dreamer Deceiver. They did on Rockerola, but it wasn't as prominent. Not to that extent, no. Yeah, Dreamer Deceiver, a lot of it is split up pretty evenly between lead and rhythm. Yeah. I think it's if they had if they did it at all on Rockerola, I don't know that it stands out like this. The I feel song like Rockerola, they do have harmonies. Yes, it's, they, uh, it's no, not they, as they, prominent. They, yeah, exactly. well, I think the opening riff is even harmonized, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, and then yeah. some just, of the solos are. Okay, this is just on another level. On another is, level, yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there it, it really sticks out that heart that harmonized guitar solo. Right, and it comes across really good live on yeah. Unleashed in the East. Now, and, Fergal, when you listen to Live Insurrection. Is the harmonization of the solo? It, I think you mentioned that it's not quite as good. No, I don't think so. It certainly doesn't stand out like that, or it doesn't it's seem very as, clean here. Yeah, it's it certainly did. I I listened to it before we started recording. Um, it certainly didn't strike me. Whereas that, I was just like, Jesus Christ! It's been a long time since I listened to this song, actually. Um, and listening to it today, I was like, that is just. The harmonization on the solo in the studio version of the Judas Priest one, it, it smacked me over the head. <laughs> like, and uh, the, the Halford solo one, it was like, nah, that's not even, that's not even close. <laughs> it's hard to match that energy, man. You know, it's hard to match um, Tipton and Downing. You know, and, you know, thematically, one thing that you'll start to notice is Priest is dealing with a lot of their lyrical content has to do with struggles against mm-hmm. oppression and yeah. the pursuit of justice and freedom mm. something yeah. that you hear pretty consistently on a lot of their work absolutely yeah i have an opinion on that about this song but i'll wait until we get to that point okay. naturally okay. Jump, jump I, was say, I mean if you want you could just throw it in there well do you think this is like i mean i know this is the obvious place to go but do you think this is rob halford in a very early example of writing about being homosexual I was just thinking about that. So it's actually kind of apt that you bring that up. I'm wondering that myself. So he says, mourn for us oppressed in fear, chained and shackled we are bound, freedom choked in dread we live, since tyrant was enthroned. Now, the tyrant could represent society Mm. uh, and just the chained and shackled, freedom choked, oppressed in fear. That is just like garden variety fucking, uh, yes, I am in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well you know this is sure. something I've, de- I've definitely talked about before is priests themes are universal across cultures so you can co- no matter where you come from or what your background or what your lived experience is you can relate to this song so that interpretation is as valid as any other and i like to think that halford keeps it broad like that for a reason mm specifically so that anybody can relate to it yes exactly he never he never went into too much nitty-gritty kind of detail but you could certainly read into it and, and, and certainly after reading his book that mourned mourned for us 
post-chorus, we're calling it. To me, that jumps out as like uh, his own diary entry of how he's feeling at the time. Mm. Yeah, if it's anywhere in the song, it's there. Yeah, the rest of it now could be applied to anything. It's just that particular piece. Every now and then, it's like you'll you'll see some you'll see something that's just a little spe- too specific, not in a bad way, but it's like, all right, well, you're definitely trying to say something there. Ram it down, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom are you number. trying to tell me that these Judas Priest Ram lyrics have double on top? <laughs> what me? Never. Where on earth did you get that idea? Yeah, listen, guys, Tyrant is just a song about tyrants. Jawbreaker no, is just a song about volcanoes. Yeah, Tur- <laughs> Turbo Lover. I can't say that with a straight face. Turbo Lover is just a song about turbo lovers. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So that's my that's my wife's favorite song is Turbo Lover, which I've brought up before, but bringing it up again because it never... favorite song is in out of all recorded music or just Judas Priest. No, just out of Judas Priest. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's her favorite priest song is um Turbo right. Lover. In fairness, it's like quite accessible. So yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Great song. For sure. Yeah. I, and, I like that one. Yeah. Ask and the music video 15 different priest fans what their favorite song is. You'll get 15 different answers. Dead ass. And the video has Rob with some of his best hair that he decided inexplicably inexplicably to chop off. Is that where he had the like combed back blonde hair? Yeah. The mullet. That awesome mullet, which I have no idea why he didn't keep that, but here we are. Well, I think his hair was kind of falling out, though, after a while. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, listen, it happens to the best of us. (laughs) (laughs) I remember remember watching, um, there was a video or a DVD they did from 86 from that tour, and um, me and my my friend Kevin, who's like a heavy metal fan, and another friend of ours, we were out on the night, we were on a night out, like out in the piss, and we went back to Kevin's house around like three or four in the morning and me and Kevin were like put on uh, it's uh, whatever it was called I can't remember we put on Judas Priest anyway the DVD nice. and my friend Toomey was looking at it he was like that guy looks like the baddie from Superman 2 <laughs> <laughs> Neil before uh, Rob <laughs> you just Damn. have no interest in it at all what is this what is this shit aww Man, that's really funny though, because he kind of does like remind you of a super villain in a way, especially in that guy's around that time. Yeah, mm, he looks like the baddie from Superman too. <laughs> I'll pull out a quote from Popoff's book where Rob talks about how much he loves Tyrant, and he says it's because simply for its class and style and approach and lyrics. Mm. It's an area that I want to re-explore, actually, he says. It just talks about the fact that in the world, there are these tyrannical figures in life that control and terrorize people. Mm. It's a combination of fantasy and reality, but I love the musical composition because it's a real roller coaster. There are twists and turns and a lot of information and a lot of musical directions happening within that one moment. Which, yeah. What's the name of that book out of interest? Uh, yeah, it's called Decade of Domination. Actually, Popoff wrote two priest books and 
one of them covers up to painkiller and then the other covers everything after that. So combined, they're about like five or 600 pages. I pull a lot of quotes out of that. It has a lot of good info. Yeah, I, I found his book quite helpful as well in my, my Sabbath stuff. Tyrants can, there are tyrants everywhere, man. A tyrant can be anyone, like your schoolyard bully, your boss, an abusive partner, a fucking like authority figure, like a politician. Or society itself, yeah, like Virgil exactly. was referring so- to. Yeah, societies mm. can be highly tyrannical. Subtly so, tyrannical, you might say. Yeah, well, like. Like Lady Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, that was hey, that was a really good way to bring this all around. By all the back. way, yeah, that was perfect. Um, so again, it goes back to the universality and accessibility of priest. You know, it's just it's part of the magic of this band and why I think that they're the greatest heavy metal band of all time. As we were talking about, the structure of the song is strange because you get the. Th- third instance of the chorus you get the second solo then you get the second post-chorus and then with very little transition it rips right back into verse four It's a 12-second scream. Oh, be- and a beautiful one at that. And a perfectly elegant ending. Just There's this saying, there's brilliance in simplicity. Right there, just ending it out with one chord, like, boom. That's, that's it, man. That's all you it need. Is. It's really interesting with this song because, you know, from one part to the next, it maintains the same energy. And it's just like, it's so fast paced it keeps up its momentum the entire time mm. it's got a very consistent beat and pace to it that is incredibly energetic it's hard not to get pumped listening to it agreed definitely completely agree yeah now here's something i really want your take on fergal so there's a fan theory and i call it a fan theory because the band has never ever confirmed this or brought it up so it's a fan theory that side a and side b of the sad wings of destiny record should have been flipped and the story goes that side a victim of changes the ripper dreamer deceiver and deceiver should have been the second side and then the other half where it starts with prelude and then tyrant then genocide epitaph island of domination that was supposed to be the beginning and the whole prelude was supposed to be the instrumental introduction to the album. And then tyrant would be the sort of fast opener that it leads into. That, and I'm just looking at that. I've never heard that before. Firstly, secondly, I'm just looking at the track list here and that makes a shitload of sense. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's Especially so thing. it was actually 
misprinted on some editions of Sad Wings of Destiny that side A was prelude, tyrant, genocide, and so on. And then side B was victim of changes, the Ripper, and so on. But it doesn't seem like the fan community agrees whether that was the original intention and it was changed last minute, or maybe the record label just was stupid and they messed up the printing. And based (laughs) on what I've heard about what a shit show the Gull Records was, the first Judas Priest label, I'm sort of inclined to believe they had a printing fuck up. Well, why would you call a song Prelude if it opened side B of your record? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Also, finishing Prelude an Island of Domination. Tyrant, maybe. But yeah, but that should start an album, shouldn't it? And then finishing on Dreamer, Deceiver, and Deceiver is just like, that's perfection. Yeah. And also opening be. side two on Victim of Changes, also perfection. It's like you want to open with a fucking banger. Like that's what everyone always says from that era. Uh, yeah, that makes a whole load of sense. And I've never heard that before. So that's very interesting. Victim of Changes definitely works as an opener for the album as a whole. I mean, it's just brilliant and it's so different and more technical than anything else on the album. Maybe if it was the side B opener, it would have a little less of an impact than it did as the overall album opener, especially in the sort of world we live in now where side a and side b that doesn't exist either you have the whole thing on one cd or the whole thing on one spotify or apple playlist yeah i'm, I'm trying to think though imagine if the album did open with an old man sitting there his head bowed down <laughs> <laughs> hey listen you know what we talk about this a lot about the missed opportunities with this band but if things had not panned out the way that they did then maybe the it, priest would not enjoy the almost mythical status that they do today so yeah. you know for better or for worse you know we should be grateful you know I, like as much as i wish that you know, I've, I was talking about this a little earlier, much as I wish that like Simon Phillips or Les Binks had played with the band for longer. If it wasn't for Dave Holland's contributions, um, British Steel, Screaming for Vengeance and so on may not have turned out the way they did. So he brought something to the band that added to that legacy. Yeah. The more I look at this here. Prelude, Prelude should have opened the album. Epitaph should have closed it. That should, oh, you're really, that, take, you're really taken with this theory. That doesn't belong there before Island of Domination, really. <laughs> uh, and if you're going to have a Prelude and Epitaph, have them at the start and at the end of the album, not at the first out of five and the fourth out of five tracks on side two. It's just it's all over the place, really, when you think about it. Hmm. We should maybe think about doing some sort of track list revision, like our own version of it. Yeah, because we haven't talked about that for any of the previous albums. No, and if you're a younger listener, you might not get this. But when it comes to the sequencing and the order of tracks, it really used to matter in the age of cassettes and vinyl yeah. records when you just you had to listen to it in order. You could try to skip forward, but it wasn't an exact process. You need to do a rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast on it and do your own track listing. Yeah, rise, chops, and drops, right? <laughs> That's what he calls it. Yeah, you know, George, that would be a cool little experiment. I was thinking about that when you first brought up the A and B side theory is, 
you know, making like you could do that with a playlist on Spotify. You take all the A side tracks and the B sides and you just swap them and see how it goes. If it makes the album a little more cohesive. Yeah. Or really putting them in any order you want, because I mean, it's not like Sad Wings of Destiny is the only album prime for resequencing. But then again, who am I to say? Because I'm not a musician and I, (laughs) I can't say I know better than Judas Priest. But, of course, we can have our own theories of what we think would be better. Sure. I mean, you're allowed to have your own opinion on things, you know. Hey, That's just if, you're not, if you're not, what are you doing having a podcast? That ass, fam. We just happen to be the loudest voices right now. Dude, this episode has been so much fun. Yeah, I really man, appreciate you staying up late to hang out with us, Fergal. That's any, not that late. Any closing thoughts you want to get out there on sad wings and tyrant before we hit the road um i hadn't prepared any but as you ask it is an album that kind of flies a bit under the radar if you know judas priest for songs like breaking the law or you've got another thing coming so if you're a casual priest fan definitely don't overlook this one it's fucking fantastic and especially the song tyrant but the whole album is just it's, I, I alternate between this and Defenders of the Faith as my two favorite Judas Priest albums. So there you go. Fergal, Fergal would you also like to plug your pluggables? My pluggables? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a podcast called Feckin' Metal. You can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's F E C K I N apostrophe M E T A L. And I talk about heavy metal. It's nearly weekly, but it's not quite. There's lots of different things on there, lots of different interviews and. But, but it's it's me mainly speaking to other people about heavy metal and sometimes just me on my own. Um, so, yeah, have a listen or have a look for Feckin' Metal. Sure. And if you like Judas Priest and the sort of traditional style heavy metal, then that is a lot of what gets covered on Feckin' Metal. And I particularly liked the Black Sabbath arc that Fergal did. It was uh, nine to 12 episodes or so. And it, they really went through the entire history of Sabbath, not just the early days with Ozzy, but also the later era of Dio and then the other albums that people don't quite talk about as much. And because of that exact reason that no one is talking about those later Sabbath albums, I found those episodes to be really fascinating. Yeah, I enjoyed those the most as well. And actually, I really wanted to get Tony Martin involved in that last uh, part of the the thing, but I couldn't get him soon enough. But I did end up interviewing him later as well as a separate episode. But yeah, thanks for that. Uh, that was um that was my favorite thing I've done so far in Fecky Metal was the Sabbath arc. So I'm planning kind of to do more of that stuff this year, but it's only in the kind of preparation stages at the moment. It's awesome, dude. Well, I'm sure we'll be working together again. And we'll be seeing each other at the Hell's Heroes Fest in sure will. a couple short months. That's going to fly in, actually. It's only two months away, yeah. Um, I can't believe it's fucking halfway through February already, yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll see you soon, and I'll definitely chat to you soon. And thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I had a great time. And we had a great time hosting you, man. Let's, let's do this do. again sometime. And would you like to do the outro? Stay locked in and keep defending the faith. <laughs>